Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. O oh Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, you are a transcendent God. You are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And yet, O oh Lord, you have condescended to reveal yourself to us in your works of creation, in your works of providence, and in the incarnation of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, as we come to reflect upon the words that have been recorded in your scripture, we pray that you might lift our finite and sinful minds. You might cleanse them, that we might see Jesus Christ by faith today, as we will one day see him by sight. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Times are very tense at the moment. Uh, uh, hardly goes without saying that you can uh, look at the news on any given evening and the stories are depressing, controversial, and it feeds through, I think, into a general feeling of anxiety in society in general. Uh, I'm not persuaded that, that times have ever been anything but tense. My own father's earliest memories were running to the bomb shelters in Birmingham to avoid the Luftwaffe as they were blitzing uh, England's industrial heartland. I find it hard to believe that his life was uh, somehow less stressful than the lives of those of us today in the United States who enjoy more, more material prosperity and more security than many of the generations that have gone before us. And yet we can tend to be anxious. We can tend to be tense. We can tend to focus on the present and on the immediate future for obvious reasons. And as the world around us appears to be one of continual change and flux, so there can be a temptation to allow our anxiety levels to rise. And that's where the passage from the Old Testament was read today, I think, can be helpful, or can at least point us to a line of biblical teaching that is peculiarly helpful in such times. I mean the line of biblical teaching on, on the issue of shepherds. Shepherds is a big theme. Sheep and shepherds, a big theme throughout Scripture. It's often thought it's, a, it's one of those points of, uh, I suppose, cultural disconnect in, in America. I grew up in a culture, I grew up in the west of England in a very rural setting where, in a town that was built on the wool industry. Uh, plenty of sheep in the nearby area. My wife grew up on an island off the west coast of Scotland where I think uh, I can confidently say more sheep than people. Uh, my father-in-law was, he was an electrician, uh, but he was also a shepherd. And he trained and ran sheepdogs and kept a, a herd of sheep uh, for himself and for his family. Sheep and shepherds loom large in many ways in British culture in a way that they don't in American culture. I think there's a great film from it was the 1950s with Glenn Ford, The Sheep Man, I think it's called, which is about the, the triumph of the cattle barons over those who were trying to uh, breed sheep in the United States. But even if you've never seen a sheep, and I have met Americans who've never seen sheep, and you've never met a shepherd, the teaching in the Bible on sheep and shepherds, I think, is easily graspable and very encouraging. 
So I want to reflect on that passage in Ezekiel, really in looking at the background in the Old Testament, against which Ezekiel is working at that point. He's building, if you like, on a, a notion of the shepherd that would have been very familiar to the people he was addressing, and then move forward to see how Ezekiel's prophecy is fulfilled in the New Testament. Ezekiel is certainly a book that uh, a lot of us, I think, shy away from because prophecy is tricky to interpret at the best of times. And Ezekiel is one of the more symbolic prophets. He's perhaps the trickiest of them all. And yet this passage, I think, is remarkably clear and straightforward in many ways. So the first thing I want to look at then is the, is the way that the word shepherd or the idea of the shepherd functions in the Old Testament. And it functions in three basic ways. It refers to leaders, kings, it refers to the Messiah, and it refers to God himself. Moses. Moses, as you know, uh, one of the greatest leaders of Old Testament Israel, and yet had a Momentary lapse, a momentary rebellion against the Lord that means the Lord says to him, you will take your people to the very borders of the promised land. After 40 years of wandering, you will reach the border of the promised land where you will be able to see that that you've been striving for for all these years. But I will not let you lead the people in. That honor will fall to another man. And in Numbers 27, it's obviously a burning in Ezekiel, uh, in uh, Moses' mind at this point. And we read this. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. And so the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. It's interesting the prayer that Moses prays at that point. As he reaches, or as he thinks towards, the, if you like, the crisis point in his life and ministry, the moment that he's going to die, and the moment that these people that he's, he's led and loved for all these years will be left behind, his imagination... Let him not be like sheep without a shepherd, Lord. Appoint a man to be the shepherd of the flock. Moses has failed. He will not lead the people into the promised land. He fears Israel will lack strong political leadership. He fears they will be, in his words, like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord appoints Joshua, a man full of the Spirit, to be that shepherd. The Old Testament also uses that language about failed kings as well. 1 Kings 22, another man stands on the, the verge of death, evil King Ahab, and he knows, or at least he should know by now, that he's heading out onto the battlefield that day for the last time. He's not coming back alive. And so he pulls in all of the usual yes-men false prophets to kind of try to uh, encourage him and boost him. And yet, he knows deep inside, these men are just telling him what he wants to hear. And so he calls for Micaiah the prophet. Prophet he knows and he hates, because he always tells him the stuff that he doesn't want to hear. 
And Micaiah plays along and he says, yeah, go into battle. Everything's going to be fine. And Ahab says to him, don't lie to me. Give it to me straight. So Micaiah says this. Micaiah says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. Ahab may be king, but Israel has no shepherd at this point. The shepherd has failed. They are a sheep without a shepherd. I don't know if you've ever seen a flock of sheep without a shepherd. They run all over the place. It's amazing to watch my father-in-law go out there with his dog and just whistling commands, was able to sort of corral the sheep and get them to go in a particular direction towards the pen. It's an amazing skill. But sheep without a shepherd, they're just, let's say, radical individuals. They just wander around doing their own stuff. And of course, Micaiah is not the only one who picks up on the failure of the shepherds. We've read a passage from Ezekiel 34 today that picks up on precisely that theme. Jeremiah 2 has his moments. Jeremiah 10, verse 20. My tent is destroyed, the Lord says, and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me and they are not. There is no one to spread my tent again and to set up my curtains. For the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. Inclined to say, no, sheep are stupid. You know, my dad always used to say, no, sheep had brains, we'd all be in trouble because there's so many of them and they could do a lot of damage. But they have no brain. They, they wander around randomly. And that's why you need a shepherd. You need a clever shepherd to protect them, to guide them to where they need to be, keep them away from the edge of the cliffs. When the shepherd is stupid, you've got real trouble. Real trouble on your hands. So that's the first aspect of the Old Testament. And Ezekiel clearly fits into that sort of stream of thinking. The shepherds are kings. The kings are shepherds. That's the way he's thinking. But there's more in the Old Testament. The Old Testament uses the language of shepherd also to refer to the Messiah. The coming Messiah. It's interesting, isn't it, that you know, if I were to say to you, who are the two greatest leaders of ancient Israel? Probably, probably. You'd say Moses and David. Maybe you might have some other favorite, but I would guess if we took a consensus, most people would say Moses and David. Moses brings people out of the Exodus. David is the man who sort of unites the kingdom after Saul and puts, puts down Israel's foreign name. He sort of secures Israel as a nation. And also, David is the one who is the, he's the great uh, psalmist, and he's the one who's, whose name occurs again and again in Scripture. It's interesting, of course, that you know, both of them trained to be leaders of Israel by being shepherds. Moses spends 40 years tending the flocks. When Samuel goes to find the next king and to anoint him, David's off shepherding the flocks. Which is sort of weird when you think about it. He's the youngest guy he sent out of the flocks. But how appropriate. He was training. Training for the job he was going to do because... Israel were going to be like sheep. They were going to need a strong, firm, loving and caring hand to guide them. Those are all the qualities that one would want in a good shepherd. And David, interestingly enough, is the only one, the only other figure to whom the language of, number 20, of Numbers 27, 17 is applied in the Old Testament. 
Remember that Numbers 27, uh, the Lord's looking for somebody who will go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. Second Samuel 5, the people of Israel rally to David's cause in the light of the death of Saul. And then all the tribes of David, uh, all the tribes came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. They're expressing loyalty. The king is dead, long live the new king. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. Notice that language. You're already functioning as our shepherd, even while Saul was king. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. That's the only two occasions that language is applied. Once to Joshua, once to David, when they made shepherds of the people. We read about uh, in Psalm uh, 78, the Lord makes a point. Having talked about the building of his sanctuary, he then goes on to say, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. So the shepherd nature of David is central both to his own kingship and also to the connotations, if you like, that the name David sums, summons up. Later in the Old Testament, we find the Messiah explicitly identified with a shepherd. Drawing on this language, uh, Micah 5 verse 4, And he, the Messiah, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall all dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Micah's clearly going beyond David there. David is the national shepherd. Micah's point, yeah, but there's a shepherd coming who will be great to the ends of the earth. That's not David. David, if you like, gives a little taste of that. David unites the kingdom. But this new shepherd will be great to the ends of the earth. And that brings us, of course, to the obvious teaching in the New Testament. One could look at various points here, but John chapter 10, verse 11, what does Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus there explicitly identifies himself with that messianic strand of teaching coming from the Old Testament, Rooted in the idea of the shepherd who shepherds the sheep. And that brings us then to the third point, And this is really what Ezekiel is driving home in chapter 34. Not only will the great king be a shepherd. Not only will the Messiah be a shepherd. God himself will be the shepherd. Shepherd language is used in the Old Testament explicitly. To describe God. It's not just used to describe Moses or David or Joshua. It's used to describe God himself. There's that magnificent scene towards the end of Genesis where uh, Jacob is calling in all of his sons and pronouncing these blessings upon them. It's a sort of, it's so alien in some ways to our culture. It's hard to imagine what it would have looked like. This moment where this man knows he's passing from the scene and so all of his children pass before him and he pronounces a blessing on each of them. And he comes to Joseph 
48.15 and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, King, Messiah, God himself. Psalm 23 has to be a psalm that even people perhaps who've never darkened the door of a church may well have heard at some point. First verse is what? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then, of course, we have that dramatic passage in Ezekiel 34. Uh, I know that you follow the, the, the book of common prayer, but a big part of me is, man, it's a shame we can't read the whole passage. Because Ezekiel 34 really hangs together as a unit, if you like. The preamble to what we read is this devastating attack on the Israelite kings who have not cared for the sheep, the false shepherds who have by turns neglected the people, exploited the people, left them exposed to enemies who have come and plundered them. And they plundered them themselves. And in that situation, God sort of calls time at this point and says, enough is enough. The shepherds are not shepherds. Now I will come and be the shepherd myself. I will lead my people. I will feed my people. I will protect my people. I will care for my people. I will bind up the wounded. I will cast down the proud. Everything the king should have done and failed to do, I will take responsibility for and do myself. And that, of course, then points us forward to the New Testament fulfillment of this. Mention the passage in John, but if you have your Bibles with you, I'll flip them open to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 deals with the very famous incident, the occasion of the feeding of the 5,000. Feeding of the 5,000 is, is one of the few miracles that's actually recorded in all four Gospels. That seems to me very significant. All four Gospels recruit, record the crucifixion. For example, and the reason they do that is they know that you can't give an adequate account of the identity and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ if you don't have the crucifixion in there somewhere. Feeding the 5,000 is in that kind of league. It's there in every gospel. And the verse I want you to notice is verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Just like ancient Israel. They were without, like sheep without a shepherd. It's a very weird chapter, actually, uh, Mark 6. Uh, it, 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 it looks as if it's been thrown together. But actually, its structure is quite brilliant. You start uh, early on. Jesus gets rejected at Nazareth. And then he sends out the 12 apostles. He sends out the, you know, the 12 big guys to, to carry the mission out there. And then in the section that I've just quoted from, the apostles have all come back and returned to Jesus and told him everything they've been up to. But weirdly, we have this strange gear change. We have this sort of intermission where suddenly we're talking about Herod. If this was a movie, you sort of you see Jesus waving goodbye to the apostles as they head out, and then suddenly you're in Herod's palace. And you're actually not dealing sort of really with contemporary events. You're dealing with something that's obviously happened a little time before. You're going back in time. I always find those flashback movies a bit confusing. You know, if you're not 
You know, if like me, you don't pay 100% attention all the time. They can be very confusing when suddenly the chronology seems wrong. Mark 6 can, could be a little bit like that. Suddenly we're in Herod's palace sometime before. But it actually makes sense. Because what's the story being told about Herod? Herod, of course, is the king. He's a bit of a fake, phony king. He's really a puppet of the Roman Empire put in place by the Roman authorities. So, you know, he's not, he's not a top-draw king by any stretch of the imagination. But what we're told here is he's failed. He's failed. He was clearly intrigued by John the Baptist. There was some, I don't know, fleshly fascination with John the Baptist and his ministry. He, he liked to hear him. Maybe he got a sort of thrill from hearing a great orator or prophet fulminating before him. But when push comes to shove, he had John the Baptist executed because his wife asked him or got her daughter to ask him to do it. He's failed failed as a shepherd. And that explains what happens then, why we then go back to the feeding of the 5,000. It's almost a redundancy to say they're like sheep without a shepherd. After we've just had the shepherd described to us, it's underlining this fact that these earthly kings are useless. Somebody else has got to intervene. It's a moment, if you like, when Jesus uh, uh, sees there without sheep without a shepherd and then feeds them and teaches them. Actually, he makes them sit down in green pastures. It's a desolate place, but we're told it's green. Psalm 23. In pastures green, he leadeth me. We see the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34 at this point. That's why this passage is so important. Because it speaks directly of Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Supremely, I think. Ezekiel 34. It also helps explain... A weird verse, a little bit later on in Mark chapter 6. Seems this. Jesus' disciples have headed off early. Uh, they've taken a boat across the lake. Uh, Jesus has stayed behind. The sea kicks up. It looks as if they're in danger of being capsized and drowning. And Jesus, we're told, walks out on the water and, and makes to go past them. It's almost as if Jesus was thinking... Quickest route between A and B, straight across water, I'll walk across. And I said this morning, that's why you should never wear one of those WWJD <laughs> bracelets. Because it's going to get you into trouble. You see your friend drowning in the river or a lake, what would Jesus do? He'd walk out and save him. You do that, you're going to be in exactly the same position as your friend. You need to phone the lifeguard, etc., etc. What would Jesus want me to do? That's how we should think as Christians. Jesus walks out and he makes to go past them and they cry out to him because they're terrified. All this weird stuff going on and now they think they're going to drown. And Jesus gets into the boat and the wind ceased. Another sign of Jesus' divinity there. But then we read this, and they were utterly astounded. Look at that last verse, 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They did not understand about the loaves. Well, you might think, well, what's the writer getting at there? What's Mark getting at there? He's underlining that point again. The loaves prove that this man is God. It's not just an amazing trick. I mean, Elijah and Elisha pull off these tricks with food where people could be miraculously fed during times of famine, etc., etc. Jesus feeding the 5,000, feeding those sheep who were like sheep without a shepherd, demonstrates his divinity. They should not have been worried because they should have understood about the loaves. 
It wasn't about filling their bellies. It was about revealing that God himself had come as the shepherd. So what difference does this make? To return to my first point. Well, first of all, I would say, notice the sovereignty of God here. Ezekiel 34 declares something that God then brings to pass in Jesus and reveals as such in passages like Mark 6. God reveals that he's in control. More than that, well, God is in control, but you know, dictators control countries and that can be terrifying and that can be bad for people. But notice, it's God's compassion that drives this. It's God's compassion for the people who are like sheep without a shepherd that underlies his action at this point. When Jesus looks out and he sees they're like sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion upon them. God's sovereignty is demonstrated and revealed as a sovereignty shot through with compassion. Ezekiel 34, when you read that passage, it's very clear. God is coming to be the shepherd because of his compassion for those whom the shepherds have so disastrously let down. His compassion is that, if you like, he's going to save human beings from themselves. That's the kind of thrust of Ezekiel 34. And more than that, of course, if we were to trace this language yet further, we would say another fascinating thing about the way God sovereignly becomes the shepherd is that he also becomes the sheep. Don on uh, Friday said, uh, what religious art do you want behind you when you're preaching on Sunday? And I said, man, I'm an OPC guy. That, you know, what kind of a question is that? You know, uh, <laughs> Um, we, we sort of laughed about it and he said, well, I'll go for Michelangelo's final judgment. I think, yeah, that's kind of OPC scene. I can, I can live with that. But we, we talked about a painting that we'd both seen uh, of, I think it's a Renaissance painting of a bound sheep lying helpless on an altar. And it's a very, mo- it's a strangely moving painting. It's one of those paintings you look at and it's moving. And yet you think, well, I, you know, certainly as an Englishman, I eat sheep regularly. Why would I be moved by that scene? But it's communicating the fact that the great shepherd, God himself, was not only a shepherd, he was also the sheep. He made himself helpless and was sacrificed. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. The shepherd, like a lamb, is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We have the ultimate shepherd, the shepherd who protects and saves his sheep. We might say, not by simply giving his life for the sheep, but by becoming one of the sheep himself. Nothing and no one else can fulfill that role. We live in strange and disturbing times. And even if we didn't, I suspect the, the intimations of our own mortality would creep in fairly regularly and lead us to be disturbed and anxious, knowing that all that we have one day shall pass. Ezekiel 34, though, for all of its martial rhetoric, it's a beautiful passage because it reminds us God himself 
has become the shepherd and that therefore all of our concerns and worries are dealt with by him. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we do thank you for your compassion. And yet we thank you, Lord, that it is not an abstract compassion, a compassion of pity that does not, but a compassion that has led you to act through your people throughout the ages and in and through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ supremely, the one who is both the shepherd and the great sacrifice. We pray, Lord, this day that you would calm our spirits, that you would lift our eyes away from the flux and the change and the disturbances and the uncertainties of this world around us, that we might gaze upon the great shepherd of the sheep by faith, as one day we know we will gaze upon him by sight. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.